I'm Robert Winter. Welcome to Notes in a Bottle. A note in a bottle. The practice appears to have originated in the age of sailing ships. Somebody would become shipwrecked on an uninhabited island, perhaps in the manner of the fictional Robinson Crusoe or the Swiss family Robinson, or maybe is depicted in a spate of later popular cartoons featuring a bearded survivor on an island the size of a small area rug with a single palm tree at its center. The stranded party would place a message in a bottle and toss it into the great briny, hoping the tides would carry it to someone who would read its contents. Putting a note in a bottle by definition involves dealing with uncertain prospects. A bottle could bob around for a long time before it arrives anywhere, and that might be just another island that's also uninhabited, or one where nobody can read the language in which the note is written. But it's important to at least make the effort, because to not do so would be an unacceptably final form of giving up. Notes and bottles transform separators into connectors. Although placing a note in a bottle has always been a way of challenging isolation, the sources of this condition have changed over time. In the past, isolation was imposed largely by oceans. In those days, the seas played a dual role. If you were fortunate enough to have a ship, the oceans gave you access to the most far-flung points on the globe. If you didn't have one, the water was as absolute a barrier as could be imagined. A bottle was the attempt of the less favorably situated to use the ocean in the same manner as the well-positioned, as a connector rather than as a separator. In our own age, the media functioned very much as oceans once did, bringing us news and reports from the farthest reaches of the earth. Like the seas, today's media can also cut us off from one another, as unintentionally as oceans, and in ways that are much more subtle. But the net effects are every bit as profound. Contributing heavily to our contemporary isolation is people's tendency to live farther away from their hometowns now than they ever have. We seize opportunities to make something of ourselves or amount to something across wide geographic expanses. And this often involves giving up dense traditional networks of personal connection. Today, we tend to live in suburbs where we know only a few immediate neighbors. When we drive past our subdivisions and see all the rooftops peeking over the outer walls, we can be struck in an uneasy way by how few people recognize us here or anywhere else among the thousands of other bedroom communities like them stretching all across the country. Today's media distract us from this unease by providing us with a parade of larger-than-life celebrities and iconic figures, all appearing to dwell at the absolute core of contemporary events, then telling us so much about these figures and their private lives that we come to believe we actually know them. This enables us to imagine ourselves equivalent to insiders at a royal court where it doesn't matter that we don't know all the faceless peasants scurrying through the streets, since we're close to the aristocracy around whom the world revolves. We then make even less of an effort to get to know the real people around us. 
And if we barely know them well enough to say good morning, we're not very likely to share our own personal observations about what's going on in contemporary life. In the absence of real communities where people can talk about substantive matters, we become dependent on the media to an unhealthy degree for our basic grasp of what's happening all around us. For their part, the media are so busy trying to stay ahead of trends that when we see what they present, we may think, that doesn't look like my world or the people I know, or reflect what we care about or what we're most concerned about. Especially if we don't live on the coasts, where all the economic as well as social action seems to be, we can easily come to feel not only isolated, but also devalued. It's a mindset that can take us into social media groups where everyone else feels the same way. And people cope with it by sniffing out evidence which seems to them to indicate that every slight we suffer is deliberate and part of a coordinated, sinister plot. But in online communities like these, members commonly end up adopting views of the world that are much farther out of touch with what's actually going on in our lives than the mainstream media's blind spots and, in my own experience, typically unwitting omissions. There's got to be a better way of sharing our real-world experiences and the thoughts they occasion in us. Maybe reviving the practice of putting notes in bottles can help. These notes are by someone who, after losing his vessel, learned a great deal that he would otherwise have missed. I guess this wouldn't be a traditionally proper note in a bottle if I didn't share certain experiences with more familiar originators of messages like these. So, here goes. I once spent my days aboard a covetable vessel of the contemporary media variety, television news. As for the circumstances of my wreck, which happened years and years ago, it's probably enough to say that when I encountered treacherous waters, my inexperience, coupled with some youthful idealism, plus a certain innate bullheadedness, brought me to the shoals. I now live in a place that, from the standpoint of what our media consider noteworthy life, could scarcely be more barren. Yet I've gained many insights here into what actually drives and shapes our lives. In fact, what I've learned in this environment does a much better job of explaining my previous world than vice versa. Well, I was focused on big news stories and major issues, all while simultaneously being assigned an astonishing number of stories about cute kids, furry puppies, and minor local carnivals. For this reason, along with the obvious fact that a lot more people live as I now do than the way I once did, I've learned to acknowledge my current home as the place of greater ultimate significance, or to put it another way, as the real world. I've come to understand it as, among other things, a vast archipelago, the overwhelming majority of whose islands have been artificially created by the combination of our geographic dispersion and our contemporary media sea. And I've come to believe that most of this isolation is reversible once we make the decision to invest our own experiences and knowledge of the world with some long-absent dignity and worth. And then, take the risk of sharing them. I hope that my observations and experiences will augment your own. 
and that they'll do so in a way you'll find interesting and sometimes entertaining. In setting them down, I made a point of neither depending on the media's designation of an issue as significant, nor shying away from subjects just because they bore this imprimatur. My only criteria were to deal in things that I could either see directly for myself or figure out through simple logic, without requiring reams of statistical data or special access to prominent people. If you find the results edifying, maybe you'll also begin to question the generally prevailing assumption that somehow our own direct observations are inferior to what's handed down to us via the media. Who knows, maybe one day a great many of us will adopt the practice of putting what we discover about our world into notes in bottles. In the meantime, this bottle of mine has been plucked from the surf and unstoppered. Its contents are in your hands. It's time to begin examining them. Mall of Phobia. I know I'm not alone among men in regarding the experience of walking through any crowded shopping mall as only slightly preferable to having to go to the doctor for a prostate check. What is it about the experience? Typically, we mutter something about the crowds and then change the subject. But what is it really? Well, in my case, it actually goes something like this. There's a seemingly endless series of narrowly missed collisions with some people zipping and darting so close in front of me that I nearly can't zig out of their way fast enough or put on the brakes in time. At the same time, I have to cope with people from the exact opposite end of the spectrum who progress through the merchandise with all the measured and stately deliberation of a bridal party making its way up to the altar. There's nothing intrinsically objectionable about this latter behavior, except that the people who engage in it also seem to have an inordinate fondness for walking five to seven abreast. They also have a habit of briefly walking much faster when anybody attempts to go past them. Trying to keep bridal walkers from turning my 100-yard walk into a full afternoon's expedition while at the same time continually dodging imminent collisions with impulse darters, produces a cumulative sensation of being almost literally and physically slammed around, as well as a sense of deep existential kinship with those shiny metal balls and the old-time pinball machines. Is there anything that could be done about the nature of the experience? I have to admit, I sometimes fantasize perversely about removing the social taboo against actually crashing into other people. You know, just making it like one big football game. I'm a reasonably big guy, I've played a contact sport or two, and I think that in that kind of environment, I do okay. What about smaller people? Well, admittedly, the fantasy doesn't concern itself very deeply with their concerns. Hey, it's my fantasy. But I believe the key may actually be fairly simple. Just don't create so many imminent collision situations. In my experience, it's the littler people who tend to create the majority of these stressful encounters in the first place. When I have to burn shoe leather in a full-on panic stop, or execute a hard last-minute avoidance maneuver worthy of an F-22 pilot, it's almost invariably to avoid some little bitty sprig of a person with whom a collision would not have been all that awful in the first place. 
It's tempting, therefore, for me to fantasize that if everybody would just take a little more responsibility for their own safety in dealing with the possibility of a pedestrian crash, we could all enjoy a general upsurge in both judgment and courtesy. Maybe. Actually, there is some reason to believe that the likelihood of encountering immediate physical consequences does tend to diminish certain forms of antisocial behavior. Check out a real cowboy bar sometime or any other place where there's a realistic possibility a fight might break out. By and large, people in environments like these tend to interact with more awareness of the discomforts they may induce in others. At the opposite end of the spectrum, I once lived in a city where a great many people were oblivious to the unwritten rules of conduct, such as the taboo against pressing one's face into somebody else's. When, say, a line became stalled at the checkout counter of a drugstore, these folks considered it an especially appropriate time to look backward through the line. And I'm not talking mere perfunctory glances. I mean, from a distance of no more than a foot and a half ahead of you, turning all the way around and parking their face smack dab in your line of vision, and then just keeping it there for, oh, about as long as it takes a good mechanic to change a car's oil, or maybe for the average person to eat a sandwich. Again, I've rarely seen this kind of behavior in environments where it was plausible that fisticuffs might be forthcoming. But in this particular city, where physical confrontation was only slightly less unlikely than drowning in a tsunami, this type of behavior was rampant. And I suppose when you think about it, there has probably always been some sort of correlation between courtesy and the potential for violence. The times when men walked around with swords at their sides did tend to be periods of highly refined manners. But for our own times, I could not, in good conscience, propose that we all strap on dueling gear before we step out onto the sidewalk. Nor can I suggest that we all start punching one another out in the name of improved courtesy. What else might avail us? We probably ought to give more consideration to the nature of the environments where we have our most stressful collective encounters. The stress quotient of an environment certainly seems to involve more than just the number of people trying to fit in a given space. I've been to packed sporting events where I enjoyed myself thoroughly. I've also been on some pretty full New York subways and commuter trains that weren't all that bad. Why then are shopping malls so especially apt to induce a gnashing of the teeth? I'd venture that the artfully manipulated spectacle of the merchandise itself is a prime factor. In my experience, most of people's lack of consideration for one another in malls ends up being attributable to nothing more than being so overwhelmed by what's on display that they forget the folks around them. Impulse darters and bridal walkers alike become engrossed in a kind of consumer goods reverie. The main difference between them is just that where impulse starters show their obliviousness by sudden movements, oh, look at that! Bridal walkers are more concerned with taking in everything, which means that the flood of stimulation they experience is simply too torrential to be processed at a normal walking pace. Either way, the net effect of a mall spectacle of merchandise is to induce people to conduct themselves in a manner that we would more typically expect to find in small children. Small children don't have crowd sense, 
They dart this way and that, acting on impulses whose origins are known only to themselves. Then they dawdle and meander and even sit right down in the middle of the most improbably bustling areas. For children, all of this is normal. It's just not normal for adults. This type of behavior is assiduously encouraged, though, by the people who sell us things in malls. They're not concerned with how we're going to interact with one another. What they care about is how we'll interact with their merchandise. They want us to look at their wares with a kind of rapturous longing normally associated with first loves. More often than we might care to admit, they succeed. Then, once they've got us grokking on the goods, they'll do just about anything to keep the experience from being interrupted. Most mall department stores, for example, have undergone design changes to keep us from readily discerning how to get back to the main mall. Forget about enabling us to know where we're going or to interact with one another like mentally competent adults. Their interest is in simply pushing more stuff in our faces in hopes we'll bliss out on it just a little while longer and maybe buy more. I'm not disputing that this can be an effective way to move merchandise, but is it really any way to treat people? Monogamy and football. William James, the father of American psychology, famously summed up a key difference between men and women with a bit of doggerel. Higamous, hogamous, women are monogamous. Hogamous, higamous, men are polygamous. These days, the subject tends to evoke more than just knowing chuckles. Anyone in possession of a Y chromosome can potentially find himself on the receiving end of a considerable amount of vitriol. Why, the critics of our gender want to know, do men seem to have so much trouble showing the kind of moderation and fidelity that comes so naturally and effortlessly to women? I could point out, by way of defense, that there are many among us, myself included, who haven't actually cheated on anybody. I could even claim that this shows greater strength of character on our part, precisely because it requires greater effort, greater love, or some combination of the two. But unfortunately, this tends to come across like claiming special morality for resisting an ongoing temptation to dismember frogs or commit axe murders. Keen analysis might also reveal that our fidelity was helped along by a lack of appealing opportunities at the times when we were feeling slightly less virtuous and or devoted. Into this unpromising landscape has come a timely and welcome surprise. I've recently realized that, assuming I'm roughly typical of my gender, Meaningful, long-term, exclusive commitment actually can come every bit as naturally to us as it does to females. There's really only one small thing that's different. The instinct seems to apply more typically to football. In my heart of hearts, I'm a one-team kind of guy. Not only that, it has to be truly my team. First love. When I was growing up in the New York area, I knew a lot of guys whose favorite football team was from halfway across the country, the Green Bay Packers. These same guys almost invariably also rooted for the Boston Celtics during basketball season. And only in the springtime renewal of baseball season did they finally get around to being Yankee fans. 
But this wasn't out of any kind of local loyalty. They just glommed onto whatever team was tops in each sport because it was never about anything more for them than a kind of vicarious status derived from being associated with a winner. Ladies, you've had to compete against this type for so long that I doubt any further elaboration is needed. I loved my New York Giants intensely, passionately. I watched every televised game and listened on the radio when they weren't on TV. I felt like I really knew the players. Among them was Y.A. Tittle, still playing when he was 40 years old and bald as an eagle. I considered him the coolest quarterback in the game, not least for his field generalship. In an age when quarterbacks actually called their own plays, rather than just having them delivered by the coach via a headset in their helmets, Y.A. had an uncanny knack for knowing when he could run the exact same play he'd just caught a team napping with and embarrass them with it again. Sometimes he could even do it a third time. It was a magnificent thing to watch. The Giants also had their share of big-name stars like Frank Gifford and Roosevelt Greer. But one of the guys I liked best was a much lesser-known player named Joe Morrison. Joe was an unprepossessing workman who usually played halfback, but could be tapped to do just about anything the team happened to need at the time. Sometimes he filled in for the kicker, sometimes he played quarterback, and once I believe he even played center. You tend to get attached to somebody you can rely on like that when the going gets tough and you're out there shoulder to shoulder on the field of combat. And make no mistake about it, I was out there on the field with him, at least in spirit. I was probably more intensely there than a lot of contemporary bonus babies lucky enough to physically occupy the space. Unfulfilled Yearnings of Youth It wasn't always easy for me in high school and college having the kinds of traditional values that meant I had to feel a meaningful connection to a team before I could give myself to it. To make matters worse, the ways that the schools I attended tended to comport themselves on the gridiron were not especially pulse-elevating. My high school team was so hapless that virtually the only people whose spirits they didn't crush were our cheerleaders, and I suspect a bit of their enthusiasm was just failure to understand the game. I'd like to think that maybe I could have helped turn things around if I had gotten more playing time but inadvertently bloodying the backfield coach's nose was something that couldn't be undone. In any way, could I really be sure we wouldn't have done worse if I'd been allowed in before we were down 52-3? The tradition of dismal football prospects continued during my first two years of college at the University of Virginia, where it was often said that the only realistic hope a fan could have was to be drunk by halftime. And a lot of us were. Then I transferred to another school, Stanford, and a miracle occurred. We actually went to the Rose Bowl, where two years in a row we achieved startling victories over the likes of Ohio State and the University of Michigan. Soon enough, the drought resumed. But as bad as things got, I never attached myself to a team simply because I found its success attractive. I just couldn't do it unless I felt a true connection worth waiting for. When I moved to the Washington, D.C. area, I refused to become involved with the Redskins, despite the fact that they were my new home team, 
because I didn't approve of their coach, George Allen. It didn't matter to me that the team was doing pretty well or that the vast majority of people within a two-hour drive of the Beltway were gaga over the team and absolutely awestruck by the aforementioned Mr. Allen. My objections to his approach to the game were so fundamental that getting close to him or his team was out of the question. Mind you, I had not become a cold fish. The minute George Allen left the Redskins, I was willing to begin making an emotional investment in them. In fact, through some awfully lean years, I watched every single one of their games. A breakthrough finally came one year, shortly before the annual NFL draft. It had become painfully apparent from the way they were manhandled during the playing season that my Redskins weren't going to get much of anywhere in the game until they put some big fellas up front who could block. Guys, I said to the sports page of my newspaper, a well-established means of communicating with professional athletes, this year we need to focus on drafting three things, linemen, linemen, and linemen. Not long afterwards, the team announced its official draft objectives. Offensive linemen, plural. Defensive linemen, plural. Running back, singular. I was ecstatic. They had listened to me. That draft turned out to be the genesis of Washington's now legendary Hogs, who, in short order, powered the team to their first ever victory in the Super Bowl. Show me a Jane Austen novel where pure, untainted love triumphs more sweetly in the end. The sublime proves fleeting. After the Redskins' victory, I moved back to California. The Raiders relocated to Los Angeles along with me, and they brought with them the same quarterback who had led my college team to a Rose Bowl victory more than a decade before, Jim Plunkett. How could I not pull for Big Jim, especially when the majority of his pro career had been cruelly disappointing and he was fairly widely regarded as washed up by the time the Raiders finally brought him on board. When the Raiders won the Super Bowl, it was as if all the earlier travails in my football watching life had occurred simply to provide contrast to enhance the bliss I now enjoy. I felt a kind of completeness I had never known before. Then, just as suddenly as they had arrived, the Raiders left Southern California. Football went out of my life. I suppose it was just as well. I had young children to raise and a wife who considered herself a football widow if I watched a game a week. But after my wife became an ex and the kids were more grown, there still wasn't anything I had cared about watching. A great emptiness was upon me. Would I ever again enjoy a deep relationship? Was that kind of intense, burning passion still possible for a guy at my stage of life? A new springtime, as I suspect may be typical of late awakening loves, 
my deliverance came in an unexpected form. College football wasn't something I was accustomed to taking seriously. The schools I had gone to tended to have pathetic records, and even if I were masochistic enough to watch them get thumped week in and week out, their games were rarely broadcast on TV. Attaching myself to a college I had nothing to do with struck me as being in equal parts silly, arbitrary, and desperate. Also, the players were forever graduating. How could you properly bond to a team over that short a period of time? Then Pete Carroll came to town. And L.A. might not have had a professional football team, but I decided maybe USC was close enough. I started watching some of their games and following the program as it was rebuilt. And almost before I knew it, I was watching every game. I knew most of the players' names and particular talents, and I was cheering them on to national championships. Had there ever been a May-November romance, I wondered, as idyllic as this one? The relationship eventually disintegrated, as I suppose is ultimately the way of such things. The intensity and joy were gone well before Pete Carroll hopped a flight for Seattle for his new fling with the NFL. By the end, the flow of assistant coaches out of the program had become a torrent, and the kids were acting up with no discipline, hurting themselves with more penalties than anybody could recall having seen in a USC team, as well as no focus. Big, powerful, gifted defensive players made only half-hearted, panty-waist attempts at tackles, and the team began to get run over as a result. I wanted Pete to stay and fix the mess he had created. He struck me as superficial and a bit gutless in walking away from it. More than that, I considered him a complete fool. Where else on earth could he be as thoroughly understood and appreciated and loved? as he was in Southern California. I wanted him to fail in Seattle. I quietly gloated whenever his fancy new Seahawks lost. On balance, I realized I was feeling a lot more bitterness toward Carol than I had toward my ex-wife, with whom I enjoyed one of the best separations imaginable. But then, isn't it always the relationships that are the most intense when they're good that are also the most intensely bad when they fall apart? Wondering when and if. Nowadays, my football watching tends to be, well, let's just say it's broader than it is deep. I watch all kinds of games, but I've forgotten about them by the next morning. It's not that I'm uninterested in finding something deeper and more meaningful. That kind of thing is just hard to find. I've done the cliched things for a person in my position. I've reconnected with an old flame. Stanford's blossomed again. But of course, it's not the same as it was, and it can never be. And again, there are all those times when I've hooked up with games where I had no connection to the teams, just because they were there in front of me and looked attractive at the time. I can't say I'm proud of it. I know that at best, it doesn't exactly speak well of my judgment for somebody my age 
to be chasing around after something so insubstantial. And there are times when I feel, well, I feel cheap. I really do want something better and deeper. More than anything, I want there to be just one team that I care about. To care so deeply about it that everything else just melts away into inconsequentiality. Will I ever have that sort of relationship again? I suppose that's a question that no one can really know the answer to, least of all me. But I do know that to find it, I'll have to be able to get past the old hurts. As hard as it may be, I'll have to swallow hard and put my poor, battered, fragile heart out there one more time. Gentle listeners of the female persuasion, as I've laid bare my heart, have you seen nothing resembling the contents of your own? Have I said anything with which you truly could not feel so much as a glimmer of identification? When you get right down to it, are we really all that different? If we're not, then why is it so often difficult for our genders to get each other? Maybe it might be possible to achieve a major breakthrough in understanding between the sexes if we could just find a way to redirect some of the neural pathways for sex and football. Well, maybe. On closer examination, there appear to be a lot of ways for an experiment like this to go horribly wrong. For example, we wouldn't want women becoming unable to reach orgasm because they were distracted by concerns about the relative abilities of zone versus man-to-man defenses to properly safeguard their boys. And we already have an oversupply of jokes about men watching other men run around in tight pants. Furthermore, it should be noted that in a poll, the majority of wives have already reported that if given a choice between sex and football, their husbands would pick football. Regrettably, given the potential for more drastic measures to produce tragically unforeseen consequences, perhaps the best thing a woman can do is simply to recognize how effective football can be at bringing out her man's virtuous, monogamistic side and encourage him to watch as many of his team's games as possible. Tough medicine? Possibly. But I say, let's give love a chance. That's all the notes in this packet. The next batch will arrive whenever we can convince the tides to wash them up on your shore. Thanks again for checking out these Notes in a Bottle.